You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Good morning. I turned my mic on. I had to do it. I had to do it. I thought a lot about it. I can't help it. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, I want to thank you, especially if it's your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, as Lauren already mentioned, we are walking through the book of Jonah this fall. And we've been uh, going through chapter one for the past six or seven weeks. And, and I, I warned you about this, that we would uh, be going through certain portions pretty slowly and methodically, and then that we, we would speed up at times. So this is one of the hyperspeed Sundays in that we're going to cover 10 verses in one Sunday, which includes an entire chapter. Um, and we're picking up the story. Uh, for those of you who may not have been here or maybe uh, you weren't able to catch the podcast, we're picking up the story this morning as Jonah awakens in the belly of a fish after being thrown overboard by the sailors uh, and God swallowing him or appointing a fish to swallow Jonah up to save him. And so before we pray, I just want to mention here as a recap, it seems as though God's been flexing his muscles a little bit in the first chapter of Jonah so far, just to recap some of the things that he has done. So, so far, God speaks to a man named Jonah to go to a great city, arguably the greatest and most powerful city in the ancient world at the time, and to preach and to call out against this city. In particular, God calls Jonah to tell this city that he himself has reserved judgment for them if they would not repent and come back to him, which is a pretty authoritative stance for God to be taking in this great city of Assyria. And then it continues on that Jonah runs away from the presence of God, and God proceeds to thwart Jonah at every turn as he tries to run. And so Jonah gets into a boat, and he tries to make his way to Tarshish, and God says no by appointing a massive storm uh, to basically envelop this boat. And then the sailors try to save Jonah when they realize what he's done. And so they try to row to the shore. And God just kicks up the winds a little bit and keeps them from making it to the shore. Finally, when Jonah succumbs to suicidal despair, he's just like, I'm done with my life. God says, nope, and appoints a fish to swallow him up. You know, so God's been flexing his muscles, showing who's in charge here in the first chapter. And where we pick up the story, we are recount, we are We are hearing the recounting of Jonah, of a prayer that he prayed as he sank to the bottom of the ocean. So a misnomer here is often we think this is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale, but by context clues, we can see this was Jonah's prayer as he was about to die. But he's remembering this, right? So he's remembering and recounting this is what it was like as I was falling into the ocean and he's worshiping and thanking God for what was happening. Now, before we jump into the text, what I'd love to do is pray, and I want you to pray with me because here's what I want to pray in particular, is that the Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, soften our hearts, help us to see and to hear how this prayer can be not only, you know, personally applicable, but corporately applicable to Christians, the church, the people of God, and how we can hopefully have soft enough 
hearts to respond to God's word this morning in a way that actually shapes, molds, changes us, receive some of the difficulties of what it's like to be in the experience of the belly of the fish, as it were. So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we are, first of all, we come to your courts with thanksgiving. Thank you that your word is true. It's time-honored. It is not only powerful, but it is comforting. It's not only comforting, but it's able to shape us, mold us, change us. And most of all, my God, your word is true. So we ask now, would you sanctify us in that truth? Lord Jesus, that through the washing and the power of your precious blood that you shed for us, that as we come now humbly to your word, that we can be confident, each and every one of us that calls upon you as Savior, we can be confident that we can come to your word and be received in your presence because you have done everything that needs to be done to put away our sin. And finally, Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would do that merciful work of softening our hearts, opening our stopped-up ears, putting salve on our eyes so that we can see, so that in reading your word and in digesting your word, our families might be blessed, our homes might be blessed, our neighborhoods might be blessed, our communities, our jobs, our city, state, nation, and world might be blessed. We ask that you would do that merciful work starting in our own hearts, and we pray it now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, chapter 2, I want to read a first handful of verses here. It says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars are closed upon me forever. And yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So Jonah recounts here what it was like to be sinking to the bottom of the ocean after being thwarted by God with all of his self-salvation techniques. And I want to recount the things that he says because I think that they're helpful, especially because they have a direct analogy for you and I into the New Testament. And here's what he says. He said it was like being in the belly of Sheol, right? Belly of Sheol is a word. It's like being with the the people of the dead, being at the very heart of the, the, the abode of the dead people. He says that, He was in the deep, the very heart of the seas. I joked with the 9 a.m. about uh, my wife and I had been on a number of cruises, but if you've ever been on a cruise and the storm arises in the oceans, it is not as like carnival-like as the commercials. I'm just, it is so terrible. So the way that it worked, the only time that I've ever experienced this, I think we were on a Holland America cruise or something uh, for our anniversary, and we were at the cafeteria, which that's where you just, It's clearly gluttony, all right? Everywhere, everywhere you look, you're just like like holding food while you're waiting in line for food. They're offering you ice cream on the way out. You just ate ice cream, but you're like, okay, you know, you just go for it. Anyway, we're there, and I started noticing these boats are big, right? So they they use, typically, if they're seeing a really strong movement, that means there's some really strong waves. 
And I started realizing that some of the carts with the, with the glasses and the plates on it were rolling and they'd roll back. I started hearing things in the kitchen, you know, breaking. And I'm like, oh, something must be going on outside. It's like, I'll go check it out. Note to self, don't do that. And you're in the middle of the ocean, don't go check out the storm. I did. It is terrifying. The waves are huge. You're not talking about like going to Galveston boogie board. You're talking terrifying stuff. And Jonah is describing here what it is to be in the heart of the sea, sinking to the bottom in the middle of a storm. He's like, that's what it was like for me. I'm headed down to the deep. He said, your flood surrounded me in verse 3. And then in verse 5, he says, waters closed in over me to take my life. Now, the back half of verse 5 actually makes me laugh. I have a sadistic sense of humor, but he says, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of mountains. I don't know why that makes me laugh, but it's like insult to injury, right? You're drowning, it's tough, and God just starts to wrap your head. And this is not like a seaweed wrap, ladies. This is different. <laughs> around your head. It's like I am already can't breathe, so just in case you thought you might, I don't know, figure out a way, he just wraps his mouth with seaweed. Anyway. He says, the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So the land of the death or land of the dead was basically closing in on his life. Now, I mentioned this in chapter one when we were walking through it, and I think it's still true, but I want to make a point here. It is very, it's not difficult if you're willing to uh, read with any sort of spiritual eyes to identify with Jonah, to identify with the situation. And when we read about being in the storms, in the belly of a fish, you know, it's not it's not difficult for us to say, yeah, I've been in those moments of life where I felt like I was in the lowest of low, that I was drowning, that I was in the pit. In fact, David even says similar things to this in the Psalms. I was in the pit and you raised me up. I was in the miry clay, the miry bog, and you, you pulled me out. But I think the straight line analogy here is not just our personal circumstances. It's all of our spiritual circumstances. And I say that because this text reminds me particularly of Ephesians chapter number two in Paul's description of you and of me and our spiritual state before Christ. Just as a simple quote of what Paul says, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course and the pattern of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air. By the way, that's the devil. He's a bad guy to follow. Then he says, he says that we were hostile toward God, enemies toward God, and basically like all of the children of mankind that we were children of wrath. So you could draw a straight line between that kind of spiritual predicament that we find ourselves in and the physical predicament that Jonah is finding himself in, that all of us are spiritually, ultimately, in the belly of the fish. Now, as I mentioned in one of my earlier sermons, one of the more interesting facts about the book of Jonah is the meanings of names as you go throughout. Like if there's names and there's meanings of those names and they all have some, some unique relevance to the story. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to this, you can go back in the podcast. But, you know, Nineveh literally means house of fish. So it's not coincidental that God sends a fish and makes it Jonah's house for three days as he runs away from the house of fish, okay? Jonah is unwilling to make the trek from his home to Nineveh in order to preach to those evil inhabitants. He's unintrigued by preaching God's potential judgment and potential mercy to them. And the reason that he is unintrigued by this proposal is because he doesn't believe the Ninevites actually deserve mercy. Now, we don't get this until chapter four. I'm giving you a spoiler alert. Jonah tells God why he wasn't crazy about going in the first place. And it wasn't primarily fear, although I imagine that he probably had a little you know, fear. 
the primary reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he sees how evil they are, and he says, I don't want you to forgive them. I want them to go down because they deserve to go down. And before you start getting all self-righteous, this, you would probably be the same way. Like when, when you're always like, hey, forgive the sinner until someone robs your house, right? And then you're like, God, may they be met with all of the Psalms' worst judgments, you know? That's how you feel. It's like you're, you're merciful until you're offended, and then you're like, all right, let's bring the justice sword down. And that's how Jonah feels. So what does God do? In his perfect wisdom, God appoints a storm that results in Jonah being tossed overboard, and then God appoints a fish that will swallow up Jonah right before he breathes his last breath. So why is God doing it this way? And I want to say more than God having a sense of humor, which if you don't see God's sense of humor, I can't help you. That's funny, okay? But more than that, God is mercifully bringing Jonah to a harsh reality, and here is that reality. Every human being is fallen and broken with sin, and apart from God's mercy and grace, we are all under the same judgment as Nineveh. That's the point for Jonah. Or maybe put it like this. You in your own strength can run from the house of fish, but in the end, apart from Christ, you will always have fish as your house. It is, there's no way of avoiding it with self-salvation. That's the message here. Jonah, you think that you don't, you don't live in that realm. You don't live in that sin. You are not, but you are that sinner that needs that mercy. That's the point. So the gospel of Jesus, it's, a, it's an invitation. And if you've been to a youth camp or, or you know, you've been uh, a Christian for a while, it's an invitation into eternal life. Peace, beauty, hope, faith, love. The blessings and the promises of living a life with Jesus are endlessly wonderful. The, uh, like as a preacher, I can't exhaust talking about the beauties and the wonders of what it means to walk with Jesus. And that's why preachers do it so often. But I want to make mention of one point. The way that is illuminated by the Spirit to, when, when we hear the gospel call, the way that is illuminated when the Spirit shines on the road is a call to go to the bottom of ourselves before we experience the, all those resurrection promises. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's when Jesus invites us in, what he says is, if you would were to follow me, you must first do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, then come after me. He who desires to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the invitation of the gospel. Jesus directly teaches that the path to all of those promises only comes through the supernatural recognition that you and I are in an impoverished spiritual state in need of God's mercy. Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew 5, he said it like this. This is how Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've misinterpreted this to focus like Jesus was mainly talking about mercy ministry here. And Jesus is about mercy ministry. He is, after all, the merciful high priest. But that's not what this verse is about. He doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. And he says it because he knows that in the crowd there will be those who know that's them and there will be those who say, oh, that's not me. Yet they all are poor in spirit. And the blessedness is those who see it as they truly are, see themselves as they truly are. It's a statement of fact. He's saying the blessed ones, the happy ones, the fulfilled ones in life are the ones who peer into their own soul and they see clearly their desperate need for God. Jesus is saying human beings, by and large, overall, every one of us, not like some and not the others, every human being that's ever been born apart from Christ himself, 
is spiritually impoverished, desperately in need for God. And it's only by recognizing that and confessing that that you actually gain the kingdom of heaven. Another way to put this is that you and I are born at the spiritual bottom of things, the belly of the fish. And the born-again experience comes whenever God illuminates the darkness of the belly and says, this is where you've been. We've just been lighting candles and spraying Febreze, but it's nasty in here. And God shows up and shows us where we are and says, I can bring you out of this. That's the merciful Christ that we serve. Now, here's the common argument that you may hear. And I hear it often as a pastor. People will say, well, of course, people are, you know, that are really having a rough go of it at the bottom of, you know, their lives when they're down and out. They love church, you know. People that have it all together don't need church. And here's the subtle lie. We can be lulled into a spiritual sleep, much like Jonah who moseyed onto the self-salvation boat and fell asleep in the middle of the boat. Here's the truth. We can rely heavily upon all the pleasures of the world to convince us that our relatively comfortable existence in life is God's way of patting us on the back and reassuring us that everything's okay. It's especially dangerous for us, friends, in our culture because we relatively have a pretty comfortable existence, so we think God must not be all that angry. God must not be all that mad at sin. God must not be all that mad at our sinful decisions. And ultimately, he's just kind of saying, hey, you're doing a pretty good job because, you know, you guys don't, for the most part, do all of the, oh, I don't know, worshiping the golden calves. Just do your best. Try your hardest. No big deal, right? It's easy to start seeing God as, as exclusively a rescuer of prodigals. Like God is only rescuing those people who really mess it up in life, Right? It's why most of the time our testimonies revolve around people like mine who have this dramatic, like, I'm, I'm a loser, and so it's cool. It's like, man, God makes losers winners? But you don't necessarily see the people who are like, you know what, I was really moral, I was really virtuous, I did all the right things, and then God showed me just how depraved I was and saved me in Christ, and thank God that he did, because I was really in the belly of the fish, and it smelled awful in there, but I had really churched the place up. You don't hear that. It's not a video you see on YouTube with a million hits. It's always someone like me, the Christian school kid who stole his teacher's car and got kicked out. And you're like, God saves cigarette smokers. You know, like that's me. You know, we look at the prodigals, like, thank God for rescuing the prodigals, but we kind of got this. So for the rest of us astute older brothers, you know, we're holding a job, we're staying faithful to our spouse, we're raising our kids not to cuss, to eat vegan, recycle. And what we see is that, you know, when we see Jesus, we just think he comes along, he rescues the prodigal, our little brother who's so screwed up. You know, we talk about him at home group. We're like, pray for my little brother. And he's an idiot. And you see God say, you know, save our little brother. And then when God shows up to us, he just pats us on the back and says, keep up the good work, Bubba. But remember that the parable of the prodigal son doesn't look like that at all. What it looks like is the lost little brother comes home, the older brother who thinks he's got it all together, the father has to go out and entreat him and say, you're lost in the house. The older brother got up every morning, punched the clock, did all the right things, and he was equally as lost, equally as alienated from the love of the father as his younger brother was. Jonah, by all evidence, is a good Jewish man. He knows the law, follows the law. He worships the one true God of Israel. But what's uncovered in this story so far is that Jonah is just as prone to idolatrous obstinance as every Ninevite that ever lived. He runs from God directly. Not only that, but Jonah is in absolute and utter need of the very salvation and mercy that he's called to go and preach to the Ninevites. And here's the kicker. Only God provides this salvation. 
I want to state this clearly, and I'm going to hammer this home the rest of the sermon. God provides, he is a, he has a monopoly on salvation. And no antitrust laws will break up this monopoly. Only God saves. And Jonah tries to go to Tarshish, and Nineveh has their false goddesses, but ultimately only God saves. And God's purpose is to show Jonah, you need me, and show the Ninevites, you need me, so that he might extend and pour out his mercy. And here's what I'll say. At some point in our lives, we too are met with the decision to move Christ from the helpful guide column into the only hope column. It's God's primary goal in your life. Or I'll put it like this, more important to God than to free you from a life of stress is to free you from the power of sin. And if it means that you would have a very stressful belly of the fish situation that lasted for years, that he might free you from the power of sin and self and Satan, he will take that trade because he cares and loves you. Eric's point last week was this, God's mercy is manifest to us, not that he leaves us alone, but that he is willing to wire our lives in whatever way necessary to make sure that this transition takes place. Going from helpful advice column, helpful counselor column to my only hope, Lord and Savior. Going from teacher, rabbi, that's what Judas called Jesus at the Lord's Supper table. And then Peter says, Lord, There's a transition that takes place where Jesus is no longer a wise teacher. He's the Lord of lords, king of kings, only hope. And that recognition only comes through the Spirit's help. Now, you might ask yourself, why does God have to do it this way? Can't he do it another way? I don't want to go to the belly of the fish. Let me tell you, me neither. But here's the tragic truth, and we see this throughout the entire Old Testament. It's often when we are hitting the bottom or have already hit the bottom, that our memories are jogged and we remember the truth about ourselves and the truth about God, and we never remember it on the way down. We're just like, we're, we're, it's like the parachuter that's jumping out of the plane to skydive, and they're just loving all the wind, but they don't have a parachute on. And it's not until about three feet from the ground that they realize, what did I do? That's you and me spiritually. We're always like, woo, it's windy up here. And God's like, you forgot your parachute. And you're like, stop ruining my time. So what do we do when we wake up in the belly of the fish? Well, I got two things and I got to move on. Well, really just one thing. We should listen up. Maybe ask the questions like, what's God teaching us right now? What's God saying? Like maybe what's going on in your life is more than just a vacation gone wrong. You know, like the kids, we were supposed to have this beautiful vacation. The kids hated it. My wife hated it. I hated them. It's like, okay, what's going on? Maybe, maybe more than planning your escape route immediately, we should pause to consider our surroundings and ask God, what is he up to for just a moment? And by this, I really just mean we should assess the state of our own souls, not just the condition of our material bodies. Sometimes we mistake the fact that everything going on well in the material means that God's stamp of approval is on our life, rather than recognizing that that's not always the case. In the same way that if you're going through a hard time, that's not because God's necessarily judging you. If you're going through a great time, it's not because God's necessarily cheering for you either. We have to assess our souls rightly before the Spirit of God to know the truth rather than always just relying upon what's happening in the physical. You see, the common experience of being trapped in the belly of the fish will do one of two things. It'll either make a person humble, make a person wise, or it'll make a person proud and resentful. And here's the key is that God, many times, he offers you that choice on which route you're going to take. And I think one of the ways that we can choose rightly is to listen up and hear from his voice. Now, I want to make one other mention before we make a turn here. And that is, 
it should go without saying that when Christ invites us to take up our cross and follow him, that there's an uncomfortability with that arrangement that threatens to drown out the blessings of the promises involved in it, right? Let me rephrase that. When Jesus decides to tell us that in order to follow him, it means that we have to deny ourselves, we ought to acknowledge that that denying ourselves might in some ways obstruct our view from realizing just how amazing it will be to be with him. Or to put it in an analogous way, the stench of death that permeates the air when you're in the belly of the fish will keep you from smelling the aroma of life that God's trying to offer you when he's also present there. Does this make sense? Now, now here's the thing. I want to acknowledge that while also saying there's a real blessing at being at the bottom of things. And if you've ever been there and experienced this, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And it's a gift from the Spirit, but it's this. There's something really clarifying about feeling like you've hit the bottom. Like things get reprioritized. You start seeing things more clearly. We even have a cultural way of saying this. It's called, it's, we say something like hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, you usually don't say that whenever things are going well. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's always when you screw something up and you're like, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, meaning I didn't see that before. It's pretty clear now. Why? Well, because there's another saying that we have, which is like, hey, we got to get to the bottom of this, meaning we got to understand this. And I think that jokingly, of course, but there's some truth to this. When you're at the bottom, you don't have far to travel to get to the bottom of things. You're there. So just look around and figure out what the heck happened here. Why am I here? Start assessing the situation. And that's exactly what happens to Jonah here theologically. I want to point that out. Notice what Jonah says here as he's at the bottom of things and how clear he is about who God is, how theologically clear he becomes. He says this in verse 1. I called out to the Lord in in my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. In other words, God is the one that I should have been crying out to since the beginning. Why have I been trusting everything and anything else other than God? Have you ever been in that moment? You get to the bottom, everything's bad, and you're wondering, why have I been so prayerless? Why haven't I been asking God for help? Why have I been really good at making plans, really bad at making prayers? What's going on? There's a lot of clarity there. Number two, you know, he, he basically exalts the sovereignty and justice of God. In verse three, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all of your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven from your sight. Yet yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. You know, Jonah doesn't blame the sailors, which I think is really amazing. He has clarity around the fact that it's not the sailors' fault he was in this predicament. You ever sinned and tried to find somebody to blame? We are just like our parents, right? Read the Garden of Eden story. Adam's like it's Eve's fault. Eve's like it's snake's fault. Snake's like, gotcha. That's how it goes. We are blamers, blame shifters. But Jonah's got some real clarity at the bottom. He is not blaming the sailors, and he's not even blaming God. He's just saying, you righteously threw me overboard All of your waves consumed me, and I deserved every bit of it, and then you swallowed me up in mercy. And then the last two, he basically has this clarity around idolatry and true worship. In verse 8, he tells us, idols rob us of everything and give us back nothing. They offer and promise life, and they deliver death. The very things they promise to deliver us from, they deliver us into. This is what he says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. As he decided to be covertly idolatrous, he went headlong into death. And then, of course, only God saves and only God is worthy of worship. Verse 9, he says this. 
But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to who? To the Lord. Okay, now we really want to focus on those last two as we wind things down. Because I think they're connected. Um, And I think really the entirety of the book of Jonah really revolves around these two ideas. And they are this. Idols rob us. God saves us. Idols rob us. God saves us. Now I want to show the very obvious example of this. And then the one that's not so obvious, but we've been kind of teasing out for the past seven weeks. Here's the obvious one. The inhabitants of Nineveh had fallen into gross, overt idolatry. And the result of this was God said would be their imminent destruction if they did not repent, but he would be merciful if they did. That's obvious, right? Now, the second less obvious one, but we've talked about it for seven weeks, is this. Jonah had fallen into gross, covert idolatry. And the result would have been his imminent destruction if God had not mercifully appointed a fish to save him as he cried out. These two stories are running parallel for a reason. And I would say it is important for us as Christians that we stop buying into the lie that idolatry is somehow this, you know, weird evil that ancient civilizations engaged in, but that you and I somehow have really grown out of. Listen to me. Idolatry is simply anything or anyone that you trust and worship over God himself. And in that definition, we are gross, whether overt or covert, idolaters. And here's the thing about the scripture. God is extremely clear about certain things in scripture. One of those is about who he is in relation to all of the other gods. There are a lot of mysteries about this issue. There is no mystery. Mystery, And I want to say this. It's God's clarity about who he is in the grand pecking order of the universe that got the prophets killed, that got all the martyrs killed, that got Jesus killed, and that makes every one of you and me squirm when we hear it. It's what doesn't get Facebook likes It's what when we talk about it, we're all kind of like, oh, I don't like how God talks about himself. He does not care. And he does it all the time. Like, it's not like he has one verse and we're like, yeah, we're like Thomas Jefferson, just kind of cutting that one out of our Bibles. No, it's so much that you'd have like literally not much of the Bible if you cut out all the times that God unapologetically tells you who he is over and against every false God. I want to read to you at Isaiah 45. You could turn there if you want to, but it'll be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to read two excerpts that I think are important. This is God speaking. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know that from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I'm the Lord, and there is no other. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Skip down to verse 18. For thus says the Lord, this is now Isaiah talking, who created the heavens, this is Isaiah, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Now these are the words of the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and draw near together, you survivors of the nations." They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. He's talking to the other false gods. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, his call 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. And to him shall come and be ashamed who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God's description of himself and the world is very binary. Now, there's much nuance to God and the mysterious. God's wisdom is so vast, our minds could never comprehend it. But when he describes himself and the world, it's very, very clear. He says it like this. There's one true God and there's false gods. There is the one true God. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And every other one. Now, God doesn't say there aren't other little G gods. He just says they're fakers. They're phonies. They're created beings that parade around masquerading to convince human beings to worship them, but they're not the real thing. He says, There's, when I look to my left and right at a counseling table, it's me. No one else gives me counsel that I should ever need it. Now, we read that, and this is what makes us squirm, because if you and I talked like that, you would not have friends. But you know why? Because you need counsel. You're not God. That's why we squirm. But we try to make God in our own image rather than confessing that he made us in his image. He tells us this because this is the fundamental truth of the universe. God is the only God and there is no other. And in light of that, spoiler alert, God thinks there's two kinds of people. And if you're the religious type, you probably think you got this under control, but you don't. It's not the good and the bad people. God's understanding is that there's two kinds of people. There are sinners who need to repent, and they do repent and receive his mercy and grace. And then there's sinners who need to repent but refuse to repent and try to masquerade in their lives as though they were, could find salvation apart from him. There's only two kinds of people. And they're both sinners. I know we get religious and we start thinking, well, there's sinners and saints. It's like, oh, that's kind of nuanced. You need to know primarily you're born out the same way as every other human. There was only one person to ever be born that was different. And that's why to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The rest of us were sinners in need of God's grace. And if we don't serve God, don't kid yourself. Like Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. And it's always going to be idols. It's not like, oh, there might be some that aren't. No, they're all idols. Idols of silver and gold like money and possessions. Idols of wood like beautiful houses and new barns. Idols of flesh like kings and politicians. Idols of vanity like success and popularity. I could go on. You will serve an idol. And the thing is, because those idols no longer are dressed up in gold and look like, you know, something that the Exodus uh, children of Israel would have worshipped, we think we're not idolaters. But what you need to know is the spirits that are animating the stuff that you and I worship, they're the same. They're ancient demons. And they call you to worship them because what's happening in the world is primarily a worship battle. God has commanded worship and fallen people have said, we don't want you. We want us. And so God reveals himself to us as creator. He distinguishes himself from all creation. And we either submit to our creator by acknowledging him as creator in humility, or we will masquerade around all the rest of our lives pretending that we are creators by trying to define ourselves when we are merely manipulating the things that he made. You only take the stuff that he makes and then you manipulate it. That's not creation, friends. And I'm fully aware that things I just said will get me into trouble today. I want to mention that. I know that's not popular. I know it's offensive. 
But I want to spend time on this because, Christians, I think we need to have our Jonah moment. Some would tell you, what's the reason that it's offensive? Because how dare you say something's objectively true? There is no objective truth. And I would just like to point out, have you considered that statement for any length of time? That as they reject you for saying that something's absolutely true, they are calling you to obey their absolute truth, that there is none. And why is that? Because it muddies the waters. It muddies the waters in one unique way, and it's this. People don't dislike that you're saying there's absolute truth. They dislike what you're saying is true, namely that they are sinners in need of repentance. That's why people don't like the gospel, and I find myself neatly there. Do you think I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, God, call me what I am again? No, but I know that if he doesn't call me what I am again, then I cannot receive what he calls me afterwards, which is you're my son. You're a saint. Until I go into the belly of the fish, I'm not going to be able to come out the other side when he vomits me out on the beach. Or to make it more beautiful, until you go into the grave like Jesus, you can't come out of the empty tomb with him. First, you've got to find yourself at the bottom. But of course, we, here we are, and we take this hook, line, and sinker because Christians are nice people, and so we just want to be nice. And so we say, oh, okay, I guess I don't want to offend anyone, so you know, I guess I'll be quiet and you know, just do my Christian thing and go back home and read my, my utmost for his highest book alone. And we don't realize the absurdity of it. Every single day, you have to make discriminating decisions about what's true and what's false or else you couldn't live. Let me give you an example. If you say you got to go to Dallas and you're going to drive there, what do you got to do? You got to set your car north. And if someone comes along and says, how bigoted of you? Are you bigoted against South travel? You should say, of course not. I just know that Dallas is north. But you know what we've done as Christians is that we've all decided we're going to get in the car and go south, grumbling along the way. Oh, it's going to take a long time to get to Dallas. Has it dawned on you that the same person that's chastising you for daring to state the gospel as absolute truth simultaneously is telling you there's a list of new truths you must recite or else? Now, why am I spending my time on this? And this is my last thought, and I promise I'll calm down. I want to contend that the church has largely taken the Jonah path. God blessed us with the freedom to worship and commanded us to bring the message of the gospel to our Nineveh around us. And we have largely run headlong from that calling. And before you disagree with me, I'll say, I don't think we ran for the same reasons necessarily that Jonah did, although there's probably some parallels we could find. I think we've run nonetheless. And here's, I'll tell you how I think we've run. We ran by trying to make the gospel more palatable to the Ninevites, trying to smooth the sharp edges of the gospel as though we could improve upon it. If anyone tells you they've improved upon the gospel, run away Anything that's added to the gospel only dilutes its pure power. We spent decades training production teams to get the lighting just right so that could coax worship, not knowing that that's not coaxing worship. It's, it's just coaxing self-worship. We trained our preachers to be nuanced nice guys rather than gospel-preaching soldiers who are waging a war for Christ's kingdom. We spent a lot of time, energy, and finances trying to decorate or redesign the message of the gospel and the message of the gospel has its very power in the very grittiness that we are hell-bent on purging. We've become apologetic for believing the gospel rather than being apologist for why we believe it in the first place. We've been overly concerned with offending man and completely unworried about offending God. We've said things like maybe if we don't talk about sin, more people will join the church as though if someone joins the synagogue of Satan, that's a win. We don't call it sin, of course. We'll say, just let's read it. Let's call it making mistakes. Making mistakes, of course, 
eliminates that you've offended a holy God. We say things like maybe the story of the cross is a bit grotesque. Maybe it's too much for kids while we just send them onto Netflix to watch the most grotesque things you could ever imagine. We say things to each other like maybe we should refrain from mentioning the atoning power of the blood. That's a bit archaic and ancient. We basically bought the lie that pointing north to salvation in Christ is bigoted and offensive. And so we just decided to hop on the boat south with the pagan sailors. And in short, what we've done is we've been more ashamed of our Savior and less ashamed of our sin. And so it's become very easy for us to accept certain things from the culture, like the lies that Christianity has no place in society except for right here on Sundays, maybe your home group, and maybe if they'll let you read your Bible in the break room. To sum it up, I think the last two years, and I've spent a lot of time praying and considering, and I think that I would say to sum up the last two years is the church has woken up in the smelly, dark belly of the fish wondering what in the world happened. And we haven't had the lights turned on yet, so we just smell things and we're like, this is gross and new. And so since we're all here together, I thought I might talk a little bit about it and hopefully turn the lamp on because there's no amount of candles that are stopping this smell. So maybe we could take a page out of Jonah's book and hope that God's going to spit us up on the beach soon. But first, we've got some reckoning to do. And I think that the church is the starting line for the reckoning. And here's why I think that. It's because Nineveh is slated for a real revival, but it's going, come, it's going to come through Jonah. Why? Because Jonah's some special guy. No, because we have a special God, and that's the one whom he's appointed. Church, you're the one whom he's appointed, and Nineveh's got a great revival coming. But you've got to do some reckoning first if he's going to send you into the great Nineveh. Or one way to put it is you've got to first have that revival internally. You've got to have the worship session in the, in the fish before you can go to the house of fish and see it in mass. And so I've got a handful of things and I don't have the time, but I'm going to try to wrap it up. I think we should listen up, right? If we're all going to be in here together, it's not like we can travel. So let's just listen to for God, assess our souls. Here's some of the things I've been hearing. We must repent of our idols. No, not just the ones that we've always mentioned in home group about how we don't pray as much as we wish we did. I'm talking about really getting down to the deep idols of our own hearts, and we've got to repent of them. The ones that we look a lot like the world and a lot less like the church, the ones where we befriended the world and not befriended God, the ones that we've stood against God and basically called it something else, we've got to repent of them. A lot like Jacob's daughters who keep on taking the idols of Laban and hanging out in the house and hiding them, we've got to go into our closets, take all the idols out, crush them before God, and say, God, rescue us. We've got to cry out to God again. We've got to trust God again. We've got to stop buying into the lies of the world. We have to trust Christ with everything. Humble ourselves. Take him from the column of really good advice giver, really cool mommy blogs, and move him over into our only hope or else the ship is going down. Number two, we should get clarity, and this is the biggest one for me. We have to stop being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, it is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. We, stop, we have to stop being ashamed that our God loves the world so much he was willing to die for it and rise again and constantly sits on the throne of heaven every single day and withstands all of the accusations that are railed against the one who breathed life into the people that he died to save, that we have a merciful God that much. Do you want to know why we haven't all been zapped up in some Kirk Cameron fantasy of getting into heaven yet? Because God still wants to save people. He literally looks at the person that you and I would consider as unsavable and says, that's the one that I want, the Pauls or the Saul of Tarsus. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing is we've got to recognize God's the one we should have been crying out to all along. We've got to ask ourselves why we've been trusting anything else because they've always proven to be pretty poor at saving. 
Number two, we got to stop blaming the world for our spiritual state in the church. Well, it's because we live in such a bad society. It's like, that's not a good excuse. Look at history. The church was pretty solid in Rome's day, and Rome was pretty wicked. We have to remember that idols rob us, and they don't give us back anything. They always promise life, and then they deliver death. So we got to ask ourselves, am I willing to say I'm not going to keep contributing to idols in my life and keep feeding them, but I'm just going to take them to the altar and break them down? And then finally, we have to, all of us, not just in our personal lives, although it starts there, admit that saying that there is one God and there is no other, that he is the only God that can save is not something that we should probably sit on and pretend doesn't exist except for our own prayer times. It probably is a loving thing to say everyone in all of life that's struggling and hurting and broken and being devoured by the little G gods that are savages need Christ. And the most loving thing that we can do is tell them, if salvation belongs to the Lord, that means all of these others, they're not going to be able to deliver what they're offering. And finally, I'm off my soapbox, by the way. But I do want to say, the starting line, in my opinion, starts with Jonah and the fish for a chronological reason and a spiritual reason. God intends to utilize his church in order to see the culture renewed in order to see revival happen. But in order for that to be true, he must first meet them in the dark, dank places of the belly of the fish to remind them what he saved us from. Or another way to put it is when God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, he spends 40 years in the desert first before the promised land is ushered in. You got to get a lot of Egypt out of Israel before, you know, it only took 10 days or so to get uh, Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. We unknowingly, unwittingly have let a lot of Nineveh into us, and now God's got to get that Nineveh out of us. So if you'll stand to your feet, I want to pray for us. Father, I just, uh, I want to start by just confessing before my brothers and sisters that are in you. Forgive me for the areas in which I have fallen short through not just mistakes, but sin. Eyes turned away to the idols that can't save. Holy Spirit, now we invite you to come in like the rushing wind that you are to refill the dusty compartments of our soul that we have long since accepted as just a part of Christianity. Would you swoop in now and bring light and holiness to the areas we have decided will never have light and holiness? Would you mend marriages now, father and son, mother and daughter relationships that seem hopeless? Would you now bring in the light even as you are fully light and there is no darkness at all in you? And I ask God that as we sit quietly in your presence, that you would bring to mind not just the things that we need to lay down at your feet, but bring to mind, even though the smell is strong, bring to mind the aroma of life that's promised when we do. Bring to life all the blessings that we get to have in you and how we're foregoing that for the sake of something far less that our mouth, the mouths that we sing with, the meditations of our heart and minds would be aligned with the truth of the scripture this morning and that you would meet us here, we ask in Jesus' name.